Throw me the ball and watch what I do with it. You are now tuned in to the Cherry Picking Podcast with your host, Andre Cherry. Previously on the Cherry Picking Podcast. And so this season, I kicked things off in week one action with my top five locks for week one within the Power Five conferences. And so here we go. In the SEC, I'm taking Florida over Miami. How crazy is it that we get a Florida versus Miami matchup in week one of the college football season? This is going to be a fun game. I like Florida's chances in this game. I like Florida's chances within the SEC this season. I think they're going to win the SEC East this year. And so really the big question in this matchup is, how will a Manny Diaz-led Miami program perform in week one against top-tier talent from the SEC? Like This is going to be a huge indicator of how far the team has come in the time that Manny has had reigns over the program. And then it also set the course for where Miami will go after this game because they're going to lose this game. Make no mistake about that. But how bad of a loss is it? How is Manny Diaz as a head coach? I'm really interested to see what that looks like. I'm really eager to see how he's going to perform this year as a head coach. I think that Miami could win the Coastal. Uh, If my predictions are correct, I think Miami will will perform very well this season within the ACC, but I just don't like their chances in this matchup against Florida. Can Miami keep it close, or will they get blown out against the Gators? Hey, what's up, guys? Thank you for downloading another episode of the Cherry Pickin' Podcast. I'm your host, Andre Cherry, and I had to run up here to my studio to record this podcast after watching that Florida game. That was atrocious. I don't know what I just saw. Like, damn. That was embarrassing. Miami Hurricanes versus the number 8th ranked Florida Gators. And I thought the Gators would blow Miami out of the water. I honestly thought that they would handle the Hurricanes no problem. But that was not the case. I mean, there were several opportunities for the Hurricanes to win that game. And it was almost like the Gators are trying to give them the game. And I want to break the game down with you guys and just talk to you about what I saw on TV, my reaction to it. ran up to the studios, and I'm trying to record this quick podcast to give you guys some of my thoughts and analysis on on the game. So we'll dive right in, and uh, where should we start? Obviously, this was week zero of college football. I was so excited to have college football back, and I'm sure you guys were as well if you're a huge college football fan like myself. So now that football is officially back, my morning... My Saturday morning started just like any other college football Saturday morning with me waking up early. I worked out for a little bit and then I came back home with just enough time to catch the start of college game day, which I saw for week zero, they were at Disney World. So, you know, that's kind of cool. Started out in Disney because the game Miami versus Florida was being played at Camping World Stadium in Orlando. And, you know, obviously there's probably nothing exciting. There's no draw in Orlando aside from Disney. And since ESPN is owned by Disney, why not do college game day at the theme park? Which makes total sense to me. I I understand why ESPN would move college game day to Disney. But then, you know, as the days led up to Saturday, I'm finding all this information online about the restrictions that Disney imposes on guests to their theme parks and 
college game day fans would have to, I guess, buy a ticket to go to college game day. I think it was like a hundred dollars or a hundred twenty-five dollar ticket to enter into the park just to go to college game day, which uh, seems seems a little odd to have to charge people to go to college game day. It's usually a free event. I've been to it before in the past, so I thought that was a little crazy. And then there's all these rules and restrictions about what you can bring and what you can't bring to the theme park, um, which included, you know, no flags. So if you're a fan of College Game Day, you obviously know that there's this crazy long streak of the Washington State flag being in attendance at College Game Day. You usually see it waving in the air. You may even see multiple flags in the air, but there's at least one Washington State Cougars flag flying in the air at College Game Day. And I watched maybe the first 20 minutes of the program, and I didn't see the Washington State flag in the background at all. And so I'm really curious to find out if it was actually there or if the streak ended today. Uh, I would find it hard to believe that ESPN would not allow that flag to be present during their broadcast, especially last season. They did this whole special on the Washington State flag and the significance of the streak, and it was a big deal last season. So, you know, I didn't see it in the first 20 minutes of the program that I actually watched, but, you know, I would love to find out, you know, if it actually was in attendance today at College Game Day, because that would actually be kind of sad if the streak ended because Disney said no flags are allowed at the theme park. So I would suck that the streak ends at ESPN's slash Disney's own hands. Because I'm sure they could have easily made an exception in this instance, or in this case, allowing that flag to be there. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look that up later, later on and see if the flag was there. But actually, the biggest story to come out of College Game Day on Saturday was in regards to Desmond Howard making a Chappelle Show reference on air. So Dave Chappelle's legendary sketch comedy show the Chappelle show there is a famous scene in there where Wayne Brady and Dave Chappelle are hanging out and Wayne Brady you know we're led to believe this is during a time when Wayne Wayne Brady was the man he was the guy on whose line is it anyway awesome comedic timing just being a great singer you know being a great actor he, Wayne Brady was the man in the early 2000s. So the Chappelle show had a little skit on that. Dave Chappelle and Wayne Brady went out for a night on the town. And, you know, we're all thinking Wayne Brady's this clean-cut guy, this clean-cut African-American guy. You know, this, that, this is the image that we've been led to believe of Wayne Brady for all, you know, for all these years. And what was so genius about the skit was that Dave Chappelle flipped it. He made Wayne Brady seem like... Uh, a psychopath made him seem like he was this drug abuser, like this crazy wild guy. And um, there's a line in that that show and that skit where Wayne Brady says, "Is Wayne Brady gonna have to choke a bitch?" And you know it was funny. It's hilarious. Like it's all time. You know one of the all time greatest s- skits I've ever seen. You know on TV and. I guess for some reason, Desmond Howard thought that that was okay to say on national TV to a Disney audience. Like, bruh, College Game Day is owned by ESPN, which is owned by Disney. 
and you're also at Disney theme park. You're at a Disney theme park saying this stuff on national TV to a Disney audience. What in the world were you thinking? And I know Desmond tries to be this cool guy and like, you know, he tries to be the hip guy on that panel. I appreciate what you did at Michigan. You won the Heisman at Michigan. You played for the Packers. You were the MVP of the Super Bowl. Like your athletic accolades are awesome. That's amazing. Very few people can say that they have a Heisman trophy and then also can say that they won a Super Bowl and also became the Super Bowl MVP. So like hats off to Desmond Howard great career but he is not very good at college game day and that's my opinion and I've said it before on Twitter last season um, you can find the tweet if you you know so inclined to do so but to me when I watch Desmond Howard on TV I feel as if he shows up to college game day just relying on the notes that the interns give him like it just doesn't seem like he puts much effort behind what he's saying on TV and I think he tries to get away with his personality, but I just I don't I don't feel like I'm listening to actual facts behind what he says. And you know I would love to be on College Game Day. I mean I'm not gonna lie. I would like I'm not trying to sound like I'm jealous of this man, but like I just need a little bit more information from you when you're doing this show because I don't like your the you trying to be so hip and cool it doesn't it just what for what like why why would you say that on national tv why would you say that so i thought that was crazy but you know like i said i've I've felt that way about desmond howe for for a minute now and um he issued an apology on live tv after he had made those comments or made that joke that was cool to come back on the air right away and apologize for what he did but you know you can't do that man like, I, I'm not even on that show, and I know to never say something like that on Disney. On a Disney Network show, College Game Day. But, like, honestly, he's he's not the only one. If you watch SportsCenter, there are some anchors on there who just try to be too cool with the lingo. Like, they're trying to, like, we live in, like, a barstool world right now. Barstool apparently is hot. People love Barstool. I feel like it targets a certain demographic of, like, bros. And I just feel like people are trying to be too hip and cool. And it's like, I don't even like watching SportsCenter anymore, to be honest. I don't watch it. I listen to podcasts. There's great podcasts out there for really anything, any topic that you want to listen to. But especially sports, there's it's saturated with content. So that's where I get my information and my content from. But honestly, I I miss when Stuart Scott was at Sports Center because, you know, he had these one-liners that were kind of cool, like uh as cool as the other side of the pillow and booyah and all, you know, stuff like that. Like he w- it was it came off really subtly. It came off really naturally, and I just feel as if when I'm watching shows like Sports Center and some of these other shows like Get Up and whatever, Get Out, it just doesn't come off as natural. Like it's they're they're scripting these words, they're scripting what they want to say, and it's just it's it's gotten so far away from what Sports Center used to be, like in the late '90s, early 2000s. That was great time for Sports Center, and honestly, I don't even mess with it now. But you know that's just me. 
I'm just I'm going off on a tangent right now. But anyways, hopping into this Florida Gators matchup against Miami Hurricanes. I thought that the Gators would beat the brakes off the Hurricanes, and it proved to be a closer matchup than I than I expected. The Gators are one of my top five locks for week one action. I get the win because the Gators hold on and outlast the Hurricanes by a score of 24 to 20. But let me break down the stats for you in this game, okay? So turnovers. There were four turnovers committed by the Gators in this matchup. The Gators lost two fumbles, and then Felipe Franks also threw two interceptions to the Hurricanes. And that wouldn't be so bad, but the fact that Felipe Franks was shouting to the Miami Hurricanes fans in the stadiums, and then he was also jawing off in front of an ESPN camera. It's like, bruh, just do your job and just keep your mouth shut, man. Like, what are, You're not playing that great of a game to be hollering on the sidelines to the fans and then talking to the cameras. Like, what are you doing, man? Like, what are you doing? Like, I, I don't understand. He went 17 for 27 with 254 yards thrown, two touchdowns, and two interceptions. And, you know, I like the passion. I like the intensity from a player from a quarterback, but the quarterback should be smarter than that. The quarterback shouldn't be the one jawing off to the fans and then opening and running his mouth in front of the camera. Like, just do your job, man, and just keep it pushing. Because the Hurricanes, they brought it this game. Now, granted, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the penalties committed. The Hurricanes committed 14 penalties for a total of 119 yards. That's a lot of that's a lot of yards in penalties. So that needs to be fixed. And I think that's something that can be fixed moving forward. By comparison, if you look at the Gators, they committed nine penalties for a total of 99 yards. So that's also kind of high. And so that will also need to be corrected. There were some stupid penalties committed by the Gators in this matchup. Most notably, there were two instances where I, where I recall defenders tackling opponents out of bounds. Like while they're already out of bounds, there were late hits on players. I played high school football, and I know you don't touch the defender or the ball carrier when they are out of bounds. You don't lay a hand on them. And so the fact that there were a couple penalties committed by just hitting players while they're already out of bounds, that's just a lack of discipline. And that is a poor reflection of the team and, and the coaching staff, honestly. Like, how do you not, how do they not know to not tackle and hit players while they're out of bounds? Now, granted, I know this is a, a rivalry game, an in-state matchup against two of the his, most historic programs, you know, within the state of Florida, not to mention all of college football. You know, there's a lot of history and tradition at these two schools. And I think like eight national championships between these two schools. So, you know, that's pretty impressive. But something as simple and as basic as not hitting players when they're out of bounds, that is pretty embarrassing. The Gators should have totally lost this game. They should have lost this game. And so I'm grateful that the Gators won this. But a lot of poor decisions were made in this game. So I was really impressed with DJ Dallas. I like that name, DJ Dallas of the Miami Hurricanes. He's a running back. He had 12 carries for 99 yards. He had some long runs, and he had some impressive runs after contact. 
yards after contact, and he broke at least two long runs after initial contact from the Florida defenders. And that's actually another topic that I want to bring up here is the fact that there was poor tackling from both teams. Miami and Florida both had instances where they weren't wrapping up the ball carrier and the ball carrier broke free for touchdowns. And that's pretty embarrassing as well. And I think I saw somebody on Twitter say something like, why can't there be preseason football in college football? You know, NFL, they have four weeks, they have a whole summer camp and then four, four games to get it right. Maybe college football needs the same thing because it just it seemed like a breakdown of, of fundamentals in this matchup. Now, granted, these guys haven't been playing football since early part of January. You know, they they both went to bowl games. But the fact that there was just poor fundamentals, because these are fundamental school skills that you learn when you're a kid. Tackling, you know, form tackling, not tackling players out of bounds. Like, this is stuff that you should know at this level. And it was pretty, it was a pretty tough watch. I'm not going to lie. And I would have expected for the number eight team in the nation to play a lot better than that. Because, you know, it's one thing to play the Miami Hurricanes. They're kind of rebuilding under Manny Diaz. He's a brand new head coach to Miami. You know, it's one it's one thing to play like that against the Hurricanes. But if you play like this in the SEC, you will not make it out alive. And it's sad for me because I have the Gators winning the SEC East this year. So how stupid will I look if the Gators get steamrolled this season because they're tackling players out of bounds, committing penalties, stupid penalties, and then also not showing an ability to tackle. And the secondary was atrocious for the Gators. Seriously. There were there were several pass interference calls, multiple pass interference calls on the same drive. It's that's that's rough, man. Like the Hurricanes should have won this this game. They really should have. One of the coolest things out of this game, though, was the fact that Miami brought back the turnover chain. And this year, it's like this thick gold chain with the U logo. And then underneath the U logo is this 305 symbol, which was pretty cool. And a few players from Miami got to wear that tonight. So it, it was pretty cool to see the unveiling of the new chain for this season. I saw a tweet from Bruce Feldman tonight. He said, about the new Miami turnover chain, it weighs 500 grams which is half a kilogram, while the chain itself weighs two kilograms. The charm is 10 inches wide, and there are more than 2,000 white sapphire stones in the 305 charm, which took three months to complete. So that's a, it's a piece of art, really, is what these guys are wearing around their necks as they're you know coming up with turnovers, which if it works for your team, do it. I mean, we've seen an increase in these turnover gimmicks every year and I'm really interested to see what other teams other defenses have uh, created to reward their players for making a, a turnover or making an interception making a big play and I can't wait to watch that this season and I think honestly the turnover chain is cool but one of the coolest incentive based rewards was the syrup pour I think the syrup pour was cool they did that in a, at a high school in Georgia I believe but I think, you know, turnover chain is nice, syrup pour is pretty cool, but why not take it up a notch to a pancakes and eggs incentive? I talked about this last year in my podcast. This is what I mean. Take a listen right here. But the coolest rewards program that I've 
come across that I think has gone viral now is this coach down in Georgia. He's a high school coach who gives out syrup, Aunt Jemima syrup, to his offensive linemen whenever they give a flattening pancake block on some defender. Or when the Cardinals, uh, I guess that's the name uh, or the, the mascot of this team, when they score a touchdown. So the linemen either block a pancake block their defender, or if the Cardinals score a touchdown, the linemen or are rewarded with a shot of Aunt Jemima syrup. That's that's kind of crazy. Um, I honestly don't know if I would want syrup poured in my mouth after exerting myself physically, you know, on the field in a football game. But if his high school linemen want that, cool. I think though it'd be really interesting. One one more step above that, above just syrup. Why don't you just bring out hot pancakes? some scrambled eggs, some bacon, and let me eat that before I have to go back out on the field. Like, let me come out, let me get that block on the field, come out, and then why don't you just have my pancakes and eggs and bacon ready for me so that I can eat a quick little snack and then go out there. Maybe maybe give me some OJ on the side as well. Let me eat that while the defense is taking care of business, and then once we get the ball back, I'm straight, I'm ready to go. Ready to get that next sack to get another hot plate of pancakes and eggs when I come back. I would, uh, I personally wouldn't want that, but if I'm a lineman, if I'm a big lineman, that's what I want. Don't give me, don't give me syrup. Give me the real deal. Give me that real meal. And let me go out there and earn that. And you know, if that happens, you know, they're going to be puking on the, on the field, but, uh, That would be real cool to see. Something else that I want to call out about this game was the fact that Miami has this new punter from Australia. His name is Lou Headley. And he, if you haven't, if you haven't seen this guy, you need to Google him right now because he makes Chris Birdman Anderson look like Santa Claus. Seriously, this dude, Lou is tatted up. He's, he looks like he he's seen some things, is all I'm going to say. He looks like he's hardcore. And he, uh, you know, he played, he saw action in this game, he made several punts. But Lou Headley is a name that you're going to hear be brought up each week. I'm telling you, we'll hear stories about Lou Headley. I'm sure game day or ESPN will do some story on this guy. But like I said, he just looks hardcore. And you should take a look at him on Google if you if you don't know what I'm talking about. And then another thing I wanted to mention was that Felipe Frank's mom, she was at the game. And she was sitting like in the bleacher seats. Like she was sitting in the nosebleed seats of the Camping World Stadium. And I would think for a starting quarterback, you know, on the number eighth ranked team in the nation, that maybe the Gators could get his family better seats or closer seats at least damn they were they were cutting to felipe frank's mom up in the stadium and she literally was at the last row of the stadium like her back was against the wall of the stadium seats which i find kind of crazy that's kind of uh kind of odd because usually when i see family members at these games and the cameras cut to the family of a player they're usually seated, you know, along the 50-yard line somewhere, 
probably a few rows back from the um, first row. But no, his mom was all the way in the back. So I don't I don't know what why I don't know what that means. But I just found that kind of funny to see on TV. Jaron Williams, he got the start. As you may know, Tate Martell had transferred to Miami from Ohio State. And uh, many people believe that he would get the start at Miami. But Manny Diaz made the announcement maybe a week before uh, this matchup that Jaron Williams would get the start. And Jaron Williams, I, I was impressed by what I saw from this young man. He went 19 for 30. He had 214 yards, and he threw one touchdown. He had to scramble for his life because the line, his old line, is not that good. Uh, certainly not. They weren't great against Florida, but it was serviceable today. Like they had an opportunity to win this game, uh, but Jaron Williams, there was instances where he was running for his life. There were instances that he was sacked several times. I don't have the exact number of uh, sacks in front of me right now but he took some sacks and so like I said Jaron Williams I think he'll be he'll be pretty solid this year out of the ACC I still like Miami's chances out of the coastal this year I know that Virginia is going to be solid I think Virginia Tech will also be pretty pretty solid as well but I think Miami certainly has a chance to win in the coastal this year so I'll be excited to see what they can do out of the ACC. Florida, they concern me a little bit. They concern me a lot a bit. Actually, I'm not going to lie. Felipe Franks, he didn't look great in this game. Collectively, as a team, they rushed for 52 total yards. Um, so, you know, there's some things that they're going to have to try to work on and improve if they expect to be competitive out of the SEC this year. But overall, you know, they got the win against the Miami Hurricanes. And this is actually the first time since 2008 that the Gators have beaten the Miami Hurricanes. So pretty solid win for that program, for Dan Mullen. And so I'm really curious to see if they can try to get better real quickly here. Because like I said, these guys are my SEC East favorite. So I need them to bring a whole better effort than they brought today. So with that said, thank you guys for listening to this portion of my podcast. This was my reaction podcast to the Florida Gators game that I watched. I don't even know how to call this a game, but what I just watched for about two and a half hours, this was my reaction to that matchup of the Florida Gators versus Miami Hurricanes, and I'm glad that's over. So that's the first taste of college football. That was week zero. We are now heading into week one. And I want to play you now my week one podcast. Thank you guys for listening to my show. Thank you for for following me and supporting me. And honestly, it means so much. You can find my content at cherrypickinsports.com. You can also follow me at Twitter at cherry underscore picking. And I cannot wait for week one action. And I can't wait to talk to you guys after week one concludes. So thank you guys for listening to me. Thank you for rocking with me. And now I am going to leave you with my week one podcast. I hope you guys enjoy. Is Wayne Brady going to have to choke a bitch? And so I want to welcome you into the Cherry Picking Podcast. Thank you for downloading my show. 
Thank you for following me last season, and I'm hoping for an even better second season of my podcast. I've been doing this for about nine seasons now, and this is the second year that I've incorporated a podcast element into my show, into my predictions. So I'm very thankful that you guys are followers, subscribers to my content, and I hope you guys enjoy what I have to give you each week. With that said, I want to start my podcast off like I normally do during the each week of the college football season. So I want to give you my top five locks for week one action within the Power Five conferences. So last season for my locks throughout the entire college football season, I had a record of 57 to 13. So 57 correct picks versus 13 incorrect picks, which I think is pretty good. That accounts to an accuracy of about 81%. So I'll take that. And then overall, if we look at my predictions that I made throughout the entire college football season for the entire Power Five conferences weekly predictions, I went a total of 344 correct picks to 98 incorrect picks, which accounts to 78% accuracy overall. So, you know, that's not bad. I'll take that. And this year, I'm hoping to improve on that mark. You know, it's probably pretty impossible to get 100% accuracy each week. But I'm going to try. I'm going to try. And so this season, I kick things off in week one action with my top five locks for week one within the Power Five conferences. And so here we go. In the ACC, I'm taking Clemson over Georgia Tech. So we have the reigning national champions versus the new look Yellow Jackets featuring head coach Jeff Collins, who comes home to Georgia Tech from Temple. So a new head coach. It's going to be a new offense against the reigning national champions. I don't like Georgia Tech's chances in this game. I think Clemson will dominate, and I think it could it could be ugly, honestly. I mean, you have one of the hottest offenses in college football, and they are going to be playing a team that has a new head coach. It's It's not going to be pretty. I'm just going to say that. So Clemson over Georgia Tech in the ACC. In the Big Ten, I'm taking Michigan State over Tulsa. Now, I am really excited for Michigan State this season. I think they're going to be a sleeper team in the Big Ten and a team to look out for within the Big Ten this year. So I love Michigan State in this game over Tulsa. It's not going to be close at all. In the Big 12, I'm picking Iowa State over Northern Iowa. This pits a Big 12 team versus a Missouri Valley team, an FCS opponent. And Iowa State, they are going to be very good this season. They're going to be a very solid squad. I love Brock Purdy at quarterback for Iowa State. And I think they are going to be a sleeper team in the Big 12. In the Pac-12, I'm taking Utah over BYU. And I'm expecting big things from Utah this season. I think they're going to win the Pac-12 South this season. They are a very solid squad, and I don't see this being any sort of stumbling block for Utah in Week 1. So Utah over BYU. And then in the SEC, I'm taking Florida over Miami. How crazy is it that we get a Florida versus Miami matchup in Week 1 of the college football season? This is going to be a fun game. I like Florida's chances in this game. I like Florida's chances within the SEC this season. I think they're going to win the SEC East this year. And so really the big question in this matchup is, how will a Manny Diaz-led Miami program perform in week one against top-tier talent from the SEC? Like This is going to be a huge indicator of how far the team has come in the time that Manny has had reigns over the program. And then it also set the course for where Miami will go after this game because they're going to lose this game. 
make no mistake about that. But how bad of a loss is it? How is Manny Diaz as a head coach? I'm really interested to see what that looks like. And, you know, I was a little disappointed to see Manny Diaz leave Temple last season. If you recall, he was the head coach at Temple for about 13 days or something like that. So without further ado, it is my absolute great pleasure to introduce you to the next football coach at Temple University, Manny Diaz. Well, uh, first and foremost, I just want to thank God for the opportunity to stand in front of you today. I am uh, I'm so humbled. It's an honor uh, to be the head coach uh, at Temple University. I've you always dream about standing in a in a position like this, and when you get when you actually get here, there's no uh, there's nothing like it. This is uh, this is better better than what was on the brochure. And so I'm very excited to see him in a head coaching position at Miami, where he came from. Uh, a season ago as a defensive coordinator. I'm really eager to see how he's going to perform this year as a head coach. I think that Miami could win the Coastal. Uh, if my predictions are correct, I think Miami will will perform very well this season within the ACC, uh, but I just don't like their chances in this matchup against Florida. Can Miami keep it close? If you recall last season, during week one of the season, Miami got blown out by LSU. They got embarrassed. Miami was supposed to be for real, and LSU just blew them out. And so that put a lot of doubt into people's minds in regards to how good Miami really actually was at that time. They had a pretty pretty mediocre season last year. So I think this is a huge indicator for success this season for, for Miami. Can they hang with Florida? Can they keep it close or will they get blown out against the Gators? Who knows? You know, there's a lot of questions there that we will get our answers to shortly here. So Florida over Miami and the SEC. And so let me run that list down again for you one more time. My top five locks for week one action within the Power Five conferences. In the ACC, I'm taking Clemson. The Big Ten, I'm taking Michigan State. The Big 12, I'm taking Iowa State. The Pac-12, I'm taking Utah. And in the SEC, I'm taking Florida. So those are my five locks for this week. Those will be five guaranteed wins. And if you are big into making predictions, I think those will be five locks for you as well. So there we go. Lock it in, folks. My top five locks for week one action within the Power Five conferences. All right. So now that I've gone through my top five locks for this weekend, I also want to talk about some college games that I'll be watching very closely. The first game, we have a matchup with two ACC opponents in Virginia and Pitt. And they're in the same division of the ACC in the Coastal. And last season, the Virginia Cavaliers went 8-5, and including a 28-0 beating of South Carolina in the Belk Bowl. Head coach Bronco Mendenhall is now in his fourth season in Charlottesville, where he steadily helped this team improve year over year. This team was 2-10 and his first season, 6-7 and in year two, and in year three, his Cavaliers went 8-5 and with the tie for third place in the Coastal Division of the ACC. For Bronco, 14 starters returned this season, including dual-threat quarterback Bryce Perkins, who is now in his senior season. This year, I'm predicting Virginia to have a second-place finish in the Coastal right behind Miami. And on the same token, I'm real curious to see how Pitt performs this season. Now, they won the Coastal last season with a 6-2 conference record, but I honestly don't see the Panthers finishing any better than fourth place this year. So this is a really pivotal matchup in the ACC early on in week one action. And it's at home at Pittsburgh. And that's a very tough place to play. And Virginia has lost the last four meetings with Pittsburgh. But I think this will be the year that the Cavaliers beat Pittsburgh. And again, I think Virginia will have a a great season this year. So it all starts in week one. And uh, I'm excited for that. 
The next game that I'll be glued in on is the Oklahoma versus Houston matchup. This pits Big 12 versus AAC. And this is also a pairing between two coaches who faced off against each other in the Big 12. We have Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma and Daner Holgerson, who was in his first season as a head coach at Houston. He previously was at West Virginia. So I'm curious to see what will happen. I think Oklahoma will blow out Houston. Um, but I'm also excited because it's Jalen Hurts' first snap as a Oklahoma quarterback. He previously was at Alabama. So it's, it's just going to be a cool game. I, I like to see how Oklahoma does fresh off of coming out of the playoffs last year. And if they expect to do the same this year, it all starts in week one against Houston. And then we have a matchup. We have Northwestern and Stanford. These two schools have been very consistent over the past half a decade or so, even even longer. Pat Fitzgerald is the head coach of Northwestern. Chicago's Big Ten team, Northwestern, where he's been the head coach for 14 seasons. And then we have David Shaw at Stanford, who's been in place for nine seasons now. And again, they're some of the most consistent coaches, consistent programs in all of college football. And Northwestern lost some pieces this offseason. And there are folks that were hurt last season, but they somehow strung together enough wins to win the Big Ten West, which was really surprising to me uh, because they started off kind of sluggishly, but then they finished real strong to win the the Big Ten West. So hats off to Pat Fitzgerald. He has the blueprint down there in Evanston, Illinois. So I'm curious to see what will happen in this matchup. Northwestern has to travel on the road to Stanford, and I honestly don't know if I like their chances on the West Coast against Stanford. Now, granted, Stanford's lost some pieces as well, but I just find that it may be difficult for Northwestern going to the West Coast to beat Stanford, and I'm I'm probably picking Stanford in that game if I have to do my predictions. I would probably say Stanford will win that one. And then there's Auburn versus Oregon. This game is going to be played in Jerry World in Arlington, Texas. And this is a matchup versus offense and defense. And Oregon has a high-flying offense. They've, they're led by sensational quarterback Justin Herbert. A lot of people have him on a you know on the Heisman watch already. So I'm excited to see what the Oregon Ducks will do this season. Auburn, though, has a really good defense. They have probably one of the best defensive lines in all of college football this season. So I don't know that this will be a high-flying affair you know, that you're normally used to seeing from an Oregon program. I think this one will be real close. Honestly, I probably would pick Auburn if I had to do my predictions today. Auburn will probably have the advantage in that game. But Oregon is a team that you're going to have to watch out for. And if they can win that game, this will have huge ramifications on the college playoffs you know this is a very quality game for either of these teams so this is a huge matchup that will have implications on the playoffs later on down the road and then finally we have ucla versus cincinnati ucla had one of the worst starts one of the worst seasons last year in 2018 chip kelly is the head coach and chip kelly returns to college football this is his second year at ucla after an unsuccessful stint in the nfl uh, he was with the Philadelphia Eagles, and I think he was with with the 49ers, I want to say, from, from remembering correctly. And he does not have very many fans here in Philly. I mean, he decimated that roster, what was it, like five years ago, six years ago now? But uh, he's now in college football, and so he had a 3-9 season last year. I think they finished fifth in the Pac-12 South. 
Honestly, I'm predicting them to finish around the same spot this year as well. And by comparison, though, Cincinnati is going to be a very good team in the AAC. They will be favorites to win the AAC this year. So I'm curious to see how UCLA will do on the road in Cincinnati in the Natty. So there we have it. Those are the games that I'll be glued to this weekend. Now I want to transition into discussing my preseason predictions for how the conference standings will play out this year. And what I'm going to do is I'll read the predictions that I have for each conference. And then I also want to talk about some of the teams from those conferences and give you some tidbits and some information that will help you this season as you're watching these teams. Just some key stats to point out, some things to keep in mind, some strengths of these teams. And I'm not going to do it for every single team, but I'll do it for the top few teams in each conference. And so we'll start off here, and I'll start with the ACC. So in the ACC Atlantic, I'm predicting Clemson to win the Atlantic this year, followed by Florida State. Then we have NC State, Syracuse, Wake Forest in fifth, Boston College in sixth, and then Louisville in seventh place. I'll run that down one more time. In the ACC Atlantic, I'm picking Clemson to win, followed by Florida State, will bounce back this year, NC State, Syracuse, Wake Forest, Boston College, and then Louisville. In the ACC Coastal, I'm predicting Miami will win the Coastal, followed by Virginia, then Virginia Tech, Pittsburgh in fourth place, North Carolina, Georgia Tech in sixth place, followed by Duke. So I'll run that back one more time. We have Miami, Virginia, Virginia Tech, Pittsburgh, North Carolina, Georgia Tech, and then Duke. So then what I'll do right now is just talk about Clemson out of the Atlantic, and then I also want to talk about Virginia Tech out of the Coastal, because those will be two teams you'll want to keep your eyes on within the ACC this year. I think overall the ACC will be down, but I think those two teams will be some of the brighter programs within the ACC this year. Clemson. Clemson returns to action this season as a reigning college football national champions. In 2018, Clemson scored the fourth most points in college football with 44.3 points. This year, the Tigers will score a lot of points as well. They'll be led by sensational sophomore quarterback Trevor Lawrence and dynamic junior running back Travis Etienne. Together, the duo accounted for 56 total touchdowns. The toughest matchup on Clemson's schedule will come in Week 2 against Texas A&M at home. With the pretty easy conference schedule, I predict Clemson will win the ACC Atlantic again this season. Virginia Tech The big news out of Blacksburg this season is around Bud Foster's impending retirement at the end of this season. Can the Hokies send the longtime defensive coordinator out with a memorable season? Last season, the Hokies limped to a 6-7 record, but I expect for this team to be greatly improved as it returns 16 total starters. The defense is loaded with playmakers such as linebacker Rashard Ashby and cornerback Reggie Floyd. Last season, this dynamic duel accounted for close to 200 tackles. The toughest matchups on Virginia Tech's schedule will be on the road at Miami on October 5th, followed by a trip to Notre Dame on November 2nd, and then at Virginia on November 29th. Now if we transition over to the Big Ten, my predictions for how the Big Ten will finish this year. In the East Division, I have Ohio State in first place, followed by Michigan, then Michigan State, Penn State in fourth place, Maryland, Indiana, followed by Rutgers in seventh place. I'll run that down one more time. We have Ohio State, then Michigan, Michigan State, Penn State, Maryland, Indiana, and then Rutgers. So then right now, I want to talk about some of the top teams out of the Big Ten East, and I'll start with 
Ohio State. Ohio State loses Urban Meyer, but in steps up Ryan Day into the head coaching position. The Buckeyes will be fine this season. In fact, I'm picking them to win the Big Ten East in 2019. The defense will be stacked with nine returning starters seeing action this fall, but the offense only sees four returning starters. It's a big loss to lose Dwayne Haskins, but many folks around Columbus believe that transfer quarterback Justin Fields is the real deal. I guess we'll all have to wait and see. Fortunately, the running back J.K. Dobbins returns, and last season he rushed for over 1,000 yards and had 10 touchdowns. The toughest matchups on Ohio State's schedule will come on September 28th at Nebraska and then on November 30th against Michigan. Michigan. Michigan has posted three 10-win seasons for three out of the last five seasons, but still hasn't made it to the Big Ten championship game yet. Head coach Jim Harbaugh is hoping that this season will be different for his Wolverine squad, which returns 13 total starters. Many folks are picking Michigan to win the Big Ten this season. However, I am going to take a wait-and-see approach on that one. Michigan's schedule is tough and includes key matchups on the road on September 21st at Wisconsin, on October 19th at Penn State, followed by a game at home against Notre Dame, and then against Ohio State on November 30th. If the Wolverines don't win the game against Ohio State, that's okay. But I sure as hell hope they don't get embarrassed like they did last season. Michigan State Do not underestimate Michigan State this season. The Spartans won only seven games last year, but the roster is loaded with talent. Head coach Mark D'Antonio returned 17 total starters, and this team is one of the most experienced squads in the entire Big Ten. I believe Michigan State will be a sleeper to win the Big Ten this year. Michigan State's toughest matchups will come on the road this year against Ohio State, followed by Wisconsin, and then on November 16th against Big Brother Michigan. Penn State Penn State went 9-4 last season, but benefited from the services of Trace McSorley and Miles Sanders. Well, both of those guys are gone now, so it's time to see what the Nittany Lions can do with some new blood this season. 12 total starters return for head coach James Franklin, who is surprisingly already in his sixth season up at Happy Valley. Penn State finished third in the Big Ten East last season, but I see them dropping to fourth this season. The toughest matchups on Penn State's schedule will come on October 12th at Iowa, followed by October 26th at Michigan State, and then on November 23rd at Ohio State. Now, if we look at the Big Ten West, I'm predicting Iowa to finish first place in the West, followed by Wisconsin, then Nebraska, Northwestern at fourth place, Illinois, Purdue, Minnesota in seventh place. So let me run that back one more time. Iowa, Wisconsin, Nebraska, Northwestern, Illinois, Purdue, and Minnesota. And so now what I'll do is I'll talk about some of the top teams in the Big Ten West this season, and I'll start with Iowa. I'm predicting Iowa will win the Big Ten West this season. This division is wide open, but I feel as if the Hawkeyes will improve from its 9-4 season a year ago. It won't be easy losing receiving threats like TJ Hawkinson and Noah Fant, but there are plenty other playmakers on this roster. Iowa's toughest matchups all come on the road, at Iowa State, at Michigan, at Wisconsin, and at Nebraska. If the Hawkeyes can make it out of that schedule alive, then I don't see any reason why they can't win the Big Ten West. Wisconsin Last season, Wisconsin failed to win at least 10 games for the first time in five years. The number six Badgers were also embarrassed at home against BYU, who was unranked at the time. If Wisconsin wants to have a chance to win the Big Ten West this season, the Badgers will need to rely heavily on superstar running back Jonathan Taylor, who's already rushed for 4,100 yards in his two seasons at Wisconsin. 
Taylor is poised for a Heisman Trophy type season this year and I expect for him to rack up big numbers again. The toughest matchups on Wisconsin's schedule are on September 21st against Michigan, followed by a road trip to Ohio State on October 26th. Also be on the lookout for a game at Nebraska on November 16th. Nebraska. In Scott Frost's first season at Nebraska, his Cornhuskers went 4-8, which was one of the worst seasons in the school's history. This season, many folks believe Nebraska will be legitimate threats out of the Big Ten West. The division is wide open, and this team returns 13 total starters, including sophomore quarterback Adrian Martinez. The Cornhuskers benefit from a very light Big Ten schedule, so it's possible they will win a lot of games this season. Still, I don't see Nebraska finishing better than third place out of the Big Ten West in 2019. The toughest matchups on Nebraska's schedule will come on October 5th at Northwestern, followed by a matchup against Minnesota on October 12th, and then the November 16th Wisconsin game will also be very tough. Northwestern Somehow, someway, Northwestern ended up winning the Big Ten West last season and even won nine games. Head coach Pat Fitzgerald has had some of the most consistent teams in all of college football. He finds a way to win, and he inspires his men to play up a level. I do not see Chicago's Big Ten team repeating as West champions this season, but I do believe they'll go bowling again in 2019. Northwestern's toughest matchups will come at home on October 18th against Ohio State, followed by a matchup against Iowa on October 26th. Okay, now I'm transitioning over to the Big 12, and this year I predict Oklahoma to win the Big 12, followed by Texas, then Baylor, then Iowa State, followed by Oklahoma State, West Virginia, TCU in 7th, Kansas State, Texas Tech, and Kansas in 10th place. One more time, I'll run that down. Oklahoma, Texas, Baylor, Iowa State, Oklahoma State, West Virginia, TCU, Kansas State, Texas Tech, and Kansas. And now I'll go into a little bit more detail about some of the top programs within the Big 12 this season, and I'll start with Oklahoma. Will Oklahoma see another one of its quarterbacks earn a Heisman this season? It's crazy to think that this program saw its last two quarterbacks win the award back-to-back. Could Alabama transfer Jalen Hurts make a third Heisman in a row for the program? Who knows? The Sooners posted an impressive 12-2 record last season and saw itself earn a bid into the college football playoffs. This team is stacked on defense with eight returning starters. And while the offense only sees four returning starters in 2019, this side of the ball still has explosive playmakers left. Running back Kennedy Brooks didn't start last season, but he led the Sooners in rushing with over 1,000 yards. Brooks and running back Trey Sermon will be a lethal one-two punch in the Big 12 this season. The toughest matchups on Oklahoma's schedule will come on October 12th against Texas and then on November 9th against Iowa State. Texas. Is Texas back? The heck should I know, but they sure did play a lot better last season. The Longhorns posted its first 10-win season in over nine years. The team only returns eight returning starters, but junior quarterback Sam Ellinger returns, and he's got the Longhorns faithful believing that the sky's the limit in 2019. Fortunately for Texas, Maryland is not on the schedule this season, but their toughest matchups will come on September 21st against Oklahoma State, October 12th against OU, and then on the road on November 16th against Iowa State. Iowa State. Please do not sleep on Iowa State this season. The Cyclones posted an 8-5 record in the Big 12 last season, which earned them a tie for third in the conference. 
No doubt, people's eyes will be on OU in Texas this season, but Iowa State is my sleeper team out of the Big 12 in 2019. This team is loaded with talent and returns 16 starters from a season ago. Quarterback Brock Purdy is a real deal, and he's poised for a monster season yet again. The toughest matchups on Iowa State's schedule will come on October 12th at West Virginia and on November 9th at Oklahoma. Now, if we look at the Pac-12, my standings for 2019 in the North Division of the Pac-12, I have Oregon, followed by Washington State, Washington, Stanford, California, and then Oregon State. So let me run that back one more time. In first place, I have Oregon, followed by Washington State, Washington in third place, Stanford, California, and then Oregon State. And then in the South Division, I have Utah winning the Pac-12 South, then USC, Arizona State, Arizona, UCLA, and Colorado. So let me run that down one more time. Utah, USC, Arizona State, Arizona, UCLA, and Colorado. And if we run down some of the top teams within the Pac-12 this year, I want to give you a little bit more information on those programs, and we'll start with Oregon. Watch out for the Ducks this season. Last season, Oregon posted its best record since 2015 and will be a favorite in the Pac-12 this season. Head coach Mario Cristobal returned 17 starters, which is virtually the entire team from last season. Quarterback Justin Herbert is on many people's Heisman watch list this season, and running back C.J. Verdell also returns to Eugene with big game ability. Oregon plays a nice schedule, but the toughest matchups will come on October 19th at Washington and then on November 2nd at USC. Washington State Washington State surprised a lot of folks last season by stringing together 11 wins, which earned the Cougars a tie for first place in the Big 12 North standings in 2018. Washington State will not win 11 games this season, but still, I'm sure Mike Leach's team will be a fun watch in 2019. I think they'll finish in second in the North standings this year, which is still pretty solid. The toughest matchups on Washington State's schedule will come on September 28th at Utah, followed by October 12th at Arizona State, and then on November 29th at Washington. Washington. Washington has posted three straight 10-plus win seasons, but I feel like the Huskies are a team that no one takes seriously. If you can believe it or not, head coach Chris Peterson is already in his sixth season up in Seattle. Last season, his squad just missed out on reaching the college football playoffs, but did earn a berth to the Rose Bowl. This season, Chris returns only nine returning starters, but the Huskies will still be a threat out of the Big 12 North in 2019. The toughest matchups on Washington's schedule comes on October 19th against the Oregon Ducks. Stanford Despite winning nine games last season, Stanford's program was a bit of an afterthought in 2018. Head coach David Shaw returns for his ninth season at Stanford, but he only returns nine total starters. If the Cardinal is going to be successful this season, it'll have to do it without superstar running back Bryce Love and huge receiving threat J.J. Arcega-Whiteside, who is now a Philadelphia Eagle. Quarterback K.J. Costello returns and he threw for over 3,500 yards last season with 29 touchdowns, but he is going to need many new targets this season. Stanford plays a tough schedule. The first three games on their schedule are against Northwestern, at USC, and then at UCF. Utah. Utah won the Pac-12 South last season with a 9-5 record, and honestly, I'm predicting the Utes to finish in the same spot again this season. Head coach Kyle Whittingham returns 14 returning starters, including dynamic running back Zach Moss, who rushed for close to 1,100 yards last season. The toughest matchups on Utah's schedule will come on September 20th at USC and on November 2nd against Washington. 
And now, last but not least, we have the SEC. So these are my SEC predicted conference standings for 2019. And in the SEC East division, I have Florida winning the East, followed by Georgia, South Carolina, Missouri, Tennessee in fifth, Kentucky, and Vanderbilt. I'll run that back one more time. In first place, we have Florida, followed by Georgia, South Carolina, Missouri, Tennessee, Kentucky, and Vanderbilt. And now I want to dive into a few of these teams within the SEC East to give you a little bit more information. And I'll start that conversation with Florida. Florida returns to action this season, coming off of an 10-3 record in 2018. Offensively, the Gators return their top passer, rushing, and receiving playmakers, including junior quarterback Felipe Franks, who threw for over 2,400 yards and 24 touchdowns a season ago. Head coach Dan Mullen will also benefit from seeing eight returning playmakers on defense. Florida should definitely be a threat out of the SEC East this season. The toughest matchups on Florida's schedule will come during two back-to-back road trips, first on October 12th against LSU, and then on October 19th against South Carolina. Georgia. Georgia is coming off of a season in which the Bulldogs went 11-3 but failed to return to the college football playoffs. The Bulldogs will be competitive out of the SEC East again this season. Georgia returns both of its rushing and passing leaders from a season ago in running back DeAndre Swift and quarterback Jake Fromm, respectively. On defense, Kirby Smart returns six starters, including defensive back J.R. Reed, who will be a leader in the secondary this season. The toughest matchups on Georgia's schedule will come on September 21st against Notre Dame, November 2nd against Florida, and on November 16th against Auburn. Missouri. Missouri is a team that has quietly gotten better these past two seasons. In fact, in 2018, the Tigers posted an 8-4 record, which was their best record out of the last four seasons. Quarterback Drew Locke is gone, but in comes Kelly Bryant from Clemson, who has big game ability. He'll benefit from the services of Larry Roundtree III at running back. Last season, Roundtree rushed for over 1,200 yards and 11 touchdowns for the Tigers. The team returns 13 starters overall and have a very manageable schedule on paper. The Tigers are on a bowl ban this season, but I think they'll finish towards the middle of the SEC East this season. Missouri's toughest matchups come at the end of the season on November 9th at Georgia and then on November 16th against Florida. Now on the SEC West, I am predicting LSU to win the West, followed by Alabama, Texas A&M in third, followed by Auburn, Mississippi State, Mississippi and Arkansas in 7th. I'll run that down one more time. LSU, Alabama, Texas A&M, Auburn, Mississippi State, Mississippi, and Arkansas. And so now I want to talk about these teams in a little bit more detail. And I'll start off with LSU. LSU is coming off of a 2018 season where they exceeded a lot of people's expectations, probably except for their own. The Tigers went 10-3 with an impressive victories over Miami, Georgia, and Mississippi State, to name a few. This season, head coach Ed Ogeron returns a squad that is very deep with 16 returning starters. The Tigers lose its top rusher from a season ago, but quarterback Joe Burrow is back with more experience and will see his top three receiving targets return in 2019. The toughest matchups on LSU's schedule will come on September 7th against Texas, on October 12th against Florida, and then two brutal road trips after that to Mississippi State and Alabama. Still, despite the tough schedule, I'm predicting LSU to win the SEC West this season. Alabama Alabama is coming off of a season in which the Crimson Tide went 14-1 with the only loss coming at the hands of Clemson in the college football playoff championship game. 
Nick Saban returns 12 total starters in 2019, including Walter Camp Award winner Tua Tungavailoa. Bama has reached a college football playoff game every year of its existence with two championships to show for it. Bama will have its sights set for another championship run this season. The toughest matchups on Bama's schedule will come on October 12th on the road at Texas A&M on November 9th hosting LSU and on November 16th at Mississippi State. Texas A&M Texas A&M went in an impressive 9-4 during Jimbo Fisher's first season as head ball coach. This season, the Aggies have their sights set even higher. The team only returns four starters on defense, but the offense is loaded. I expect junior quarterback Kellen Mond to have another breakout season. Last season, Mond threw for over 3,100 yards and 24 touchdowns and was also the second leading rusher on the team, racking up 474 yards and seven touchdowns. Texas A&M boasts a schedule that is top five in difficulty this season, including tough matchups on September 7th at Clemson, and then at the end of the season on a back-to-back road trip against Georgia and then LSU. Auburn. Auburn returns to action coming off of an 8-5 record and a fourth-place finish in the SEC East last season. Head coach Gus Malzahn returns for his seventh season, and expectations couldn't be higher. His Tigers returned 14 total starters, including defensive playmakers Daniel Thomas and Jeremiah Dinson. The Tigers may play one of the toughest schedules out of any team this season. Auburn opens the season on August 31st against Oregon and then has three tough road trips to Texas A&M, Florida, and LSU later in the season. Mississippi State Mississippi State is coming off of an 8-5 record and a fourth-place finish in the SEC West in 2018. Last season, the Bulldogs' defense was the strength of the team as it limited opponents to only 13.2 points per game, which was best for second in the entire FBS. This season, Coach Joe Moorhead only sees four returning starters come back to his defense, but his offense is balanced with seven playmakers returning in 2019, including three of the top receiving threats from a season ago. The toughest matchups on Mississippi State's schedule will come on September 28th at Auburn, October 26th at Texas A&M, and then on November 16th against Alabama. And then real quick before I end this portion of the podcast, there are a few teams that I want you to keep your attention set on this year, and these teams fall outside the Power Five. Those teams are Army, Boise State, and Notre Dame. And of course, Notre Dame is within the Power Five. They don't belong to a conference per se. But I want to give you guys some more information on Army, Boise State, and Notre Dame. And we'll start with Army. Army is a very good ball club. And last season, Oklahoma needed five overtimes in order to pull off the victory against the Black Knights. Still, despite that loss, Army went on to post an impressive 11-2 record. This team is deep on offense and they'll possess all the tools to be able to win at least 10 plus victories for its third straight season. If I were you, I'd keep my attention glued to the September 7th matchup against Michigan. I'm smelling a potential upset. Boise State Boise State has been one of the more consistent teams in all of college football for over the past decade. Last season, the Broncos went 10-3 and and tied for first place in the Mountain West Mountain Division standings. This season, the Broncos will need to find ways to win without the aid of their top rusher and passer from a year ago. Those guys are both gone now. The two top receivers from a year ago are also gone, but there are plenty of playmakers still left on this roster. Boise State returns 13 total starters and will be a favorite to win the conference. The toughest matchup on Boise State's schedule will be against Florida State on August 31st. Notre Dame 
Last season, Notre Dame won 12 straight before getting embarrassed by Clemson in the college football playoff Cotton Bowl. Many of last season's starters are returning to South Bend this season, where I expect the Irish to be competitive yet again. And unlike last season, there is no quarterback controversy this year. This is Ian Book's team, and I expect for him to throw for stellar numbers this season. The Irish play a very nice schedule, and I predict they'll win 10 games. The toughest matchups on Notre Dame's schedule will come on October 26th at Michigan, and then on November 2nd against Virginia Tech. So now that that section of the podcast is over, we're near the end of this podcast, but I do want to talk about some players that you should keep your eyes on this weekend. And those players are Jalen Hurts, who is now starting at Oklahoma. If you recall, he was a transfer from Alabama, and I'm curious to see how he'll do at Oklahoma, honestly, because he has some experience, some big game experience, and I think coming into the season, he is probably more polished of a player than Kyler Murray was at this point in the season last year during week one. I mean, Jalen Hurts has had meaningful snaps at Alabama, and I'm hoping that it's just a plug-and-play situation for the Sooners. And I'm not saying that he'll win a Heisman at Oklahoma because that seems to be unprecedented to have three straight Heisman winners at one school. But if he does, that's awesome. And I wish him luck because I think he handled the whole situation, the transfer situation at Alabama with a lot of grace in class. He got a lot of credit for sticking it out and and playing behind Tua Tungabailoa. When he got the opportunity to come in, he stepped up and he shined. And he won the SEC championship for Alabama against Georgia last year. So a great ending to that part of his career or his the chapter in his career. And now I'm re- really ready to see what this new chapter has in store for this young man. So I'm really excited to see what he can do with Oklahoma against Houston in week one. Another transfer to keep your eye on is Kelly Bryant. He transferred from Clemson. And if you recall, he started the season for Clemson last year, but then at week four, he decided that he was going to pull away from the team, and he eventually ended up transferring to Missouri. And so I don't know that he got as much respect as Jalen Hurts did, because they both were transfers, but Jalen Hurts stayed the entire season. Kelly Bryant left a you know, quarter way through the season. And while it's within their full right to do so, I mean, you can transfer, go wherever you want. I don't think he got a lot of respect for that. He took a lot of heat for that decision. And now he gets a new start at Missouri. Missouri's on a bowl ban this year, but that doesn't mean that he can't ball out. And I'm sure that he's trying to have one more shot at this so that he can help his chances to go to the NFL, I'm I'm sure. So he gets a start at Missouri against Wyoming. Real excited to see how he does in his first week with the Tigers. And then we have another transfer, Justin Fields, who transfers into Ohio State, and he will be playing against Florida Atlantic. And I think that game will actually have a lot of offense. And Ohio State looks different. You know, we don't have Urban Meyer there anymore as a head coach. And now, granted, Ryan Day steps in. He was the interim for like the first three games last season. So I don't think the offense will look that much different than it's been in the past, um, at least not right away. But then you also won't have Dwayne Haskins, who was... Mr. Superman for Ohio State. He put up some big numbers last season. So it's going to be a new a new era for Ohio State fans. And Justin Fields comes in. He's a highly regarded, uh, a highly regarded transfer 
who uh, stepped through the portal and on the other side is now in Columbus, Ohio. So there's a lot of pressure there. And I think with the advent of this transfer portal, there's a lot of scrutiny on folks because fans follow one team and when their quarterback transfers to go to another team, I think there's pressure there because I think a lot of people feel as if they're running away from competition. They couldn't get the job at one school, so they're running away to another school. So there's a lot of pressure and scrutiny on these transfers. And so the stakes are even higher for these young men, especially Justin Fields, I would say. What what is he going to do in week one? What is he going to do this entire season? And so I'm really excited just to see how he performs for Ohio State. And, you know, the Ryan Day era begins this weekend. So these are three players that I'll definitely keep my attention on this weekend. And, you know, I can't wait to talk to you guys about it in week two. But keep your eye on those guys because it's a new start, new beginning for them. And I'm excited. So there we have it, folks. That is my week one podcast. Thank you for following me. As always, you can find my content at cherrypickingsports.com. You can reach out to me on Twitter at cherry underscore picking. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe to my show on Apple Podcasts. Please rate me five stars. You can find this podcast really in most places that you would download podcasts at. So thank you guys for the follow. I hope you guys stick with me this entire football season. I'm excited to really get into this each and every week with you guys. I'll also be talking about Temple football as well once they start action here pretty soon. But again, thank you guys so much for listening to the show. I hope you enjoy it. And I hope you guys have a great weekend watching college football all weekend long. I know I'm excited and I cannot wait to talk to you guys again. Thank you guys for listening. Take care. Have a good one, guys. Thank you again for tuning into my Cherry Picking Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe to my show and drop me a rating on Apple Podcasts. All of my digital content can be found at the website, cherrypickingsports.com. And if you are looking to interact with me via social media, my Twitter handle is at cherry underscore picking. That's P-I-C-K-I-N. On my Twitter, you'll also find a link to my blog where I post my weekly college football predictions and analysis. I can also be reached via email at cherrypickingsports at gmail.com. Please feel free to reach out to me regarding what you like about this podcast or about what content you'd like to hear more of on future episodes. I sincerely thank you for your support, and I can't wait to talk to you again soon. Take care.